Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. And I got really a great treat for us today. We are speaking to Peachy Keenan, uh, who has a new book out, Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. And you're going to see the meme up on the screen while she's talking, because Peachy Keenan is a pseudonym. And um, because Peachy Keenan is in Los Angeles, you can understand why she'd want to use an, a pseudonym <laughs> these things. Peachy, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. Now, it's a, a, a new book. Is that out yet, or is it just coming out? It comes out next week on D-Day, Tuesday. Tuesday, all right. Uh, <laughs> yep. D-Day it is, yeah, uh, June 6th. We're storming I, the beaches, storming the bookstores on Tuesday. I was going to say, I mean, that's actually a, a, a pretty good <laughs> metaphor, because especially if you're living in Los Angeles, I mean, um, you, you might have to attack the beaches in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. You'll get attacked on the beaches, actually. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to write the book? Um, well, I am a I'm a writer. I've been a writer for you know my whole adult life. I started writing about politics um, back in 2019 for the American Mind, which is a Claremont publication. It is a fine and one yeah, and that's been a lot of fun. And I I tweet under you know the handle Keenan Peachy. And I started being an anonymous writer because at the time I was writing for a very large, extremely woke um, entertainment corporation. I won't name the name in Los Angeles. And at these places, as you know, you know, some women's opinions are more equal than others. And I would, there was no way I could ever express anything I felt about, you know, the 2016 election, you know, everyone else was with her, you know, Hillary. And so I kind of had to, I had to channel, you know, my own opinions about things somewhere. So I kind of just, I wrote something I sent to a friend who was a founder of the American mind, Matt Peterson, he published it. And I was sort of, that was sort of the birth of Peachy Keenan. Um, but, you know, in my, in my non, my non-online life, I'm a, I'm a mother, I have a, a bunch of kids and I am basically a, you know, a, a housewife, I, but I, I do work, I work at home and um, I, <laughs> somehow found myself now having written this book and doing all these interviews um, <laughs> under my pseudonym, which is, this had been just a fun, wild adventure for me. Well, I mean, and it's, you know, my wife was very proud of being a, a homemaker. Um, and, uh, and that, 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 so yeah, absolutely. You've got like five full-time jobs, basically. If you're, <laughs> if you're a homemaker, you're, you're working for a living. Uh, absolutely. But uh, I'm not sure how you found time to write a book, but I mean, this is pretty, this is pretty significant, especially in this particular moment. Um, you talk about going uh, from being a secular pro-choice feminist to a devoted Catholic mm -hmm. mom of five. So maybe tell us a little bit about that journey. I think that journey is, uh, sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason I wrote this book because, you know, I am, as I say, extremely domestic these days, but I didn't start out like this, you know, um, Domestic extremists are are made, not born, especially in my case. I had, you know, uh, raised by secular atheists. I was sort of raised in these sort of elite private school institutions. Um, all my friends were liberals. I was a liberal too. I was a feminist, um, pro-choice. I, I thought the people who, you know, were conservatives or who believed in God, I thought they were all, you know, hicks, they were rubes, flyover country. You know, I was definitely, I prided myself on being a coastal elitist. I had no interest in marriage. Kids were something, you know, you wanted to avoid pregnancy, you know, that not actually get pregnant. 
I mean, I just bought all bought all of it, you know, um, like many people in my generation and like a lot of young women now, sadly. And I just had this sort of slow awakening, you know, like many people have um, as they get older. I went from being a liberal to a conservative, probably like around 9-11, to be honest. I kind of like woke up and was like, oh, wait a second. Uh, you know, why are people burning the American flag right now? I thought we were under attack. Like what? I was so confused by all that by the reaction from the left. And then um, when I met my husband, I was still socially liberal and he kind of had had his own, you know, like um, he had been a liberal who had become more conservative pro-life. And just by dating him and kind of falling in love with him, he sort of wooed me over to his side. And then uh, I had my first child and I thought, wow, you know, and I was in my thirties and I was like, wow, this is great. Like <laughs> no one told me, like, I really love being a mom. I love this baby. Like I want to have as many as I can. <laughs> I did, you know, I don't have that much time left. I got I have to hustle. And so that was sort of, you know, before I knew it, I had a whole bunch, I had three under three and then we kept going and uh, here, here I am now, you know, I have children about to graduate high school. And I, I like to say I escaped feminism by the skin of my teeth. I mean, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I mean, I think it depends on your, you know, how you define feminism, too. I, I you know, it, it depends on which wave of feminism we're talking about, right? First wave, second wave, then third and fourth waves, which really went off the, off the rails. But I mean, <laughs> you had those choices, right? And you made the choices that you that that, that made sense for you. And that is, I think, still. Uh, an exercise in feminism. You made those choices. Um, you weren't forced into it. The patriarchy didn't de didn't demand <laughs> of you. No, but uh, the matriarchy did. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, maybe so. But that's the matriarchy would still be feminism, right? I guess that's exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I mean, I think that part of, and this is part of the issue that really irritates my wife too, who made you know some of these same choices. Um, is that people treat her as though, or treated her, I mean, it's less of an issue these days, but um, but treated her as though she was either benighted or, or uh, you know, uh, burying herself, you know, I guess sublimating herself, you know, for the sake of somebody else. Well, that's fatherhood, motherhood, really, in, in part anyway. But but she made those choices on her own and people didn't respect that. And and I'm wondering if you ran into some of those same issues. You know, you're a little younger than we are. And so um, I'm wondering if you didn't run into that some of those same types of reactions when when making those decisions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you sh if you're in a grocery store and you have like three kids in the stroller or and a baby, you get these looks like, look at that poor woman. Look at her. <laughs> her husband won't let her out of the house. She's just barefooted, pregnant. She's a, you know, she's a sex slave. Like they treat you like you're this handmaid who needs to be liberated. But the women who are doing that, who have all their little kids, who are who are staying home, I mean, that is their choice. And like, you know, it's funny. Like, what about pro-choice? We don't, what about our choice to choose to not, you know, to leave a career, to choose to stay home, to choose to breastfeed, all those things. Where's our respect? Why is that lifestyle, which is beautiful, sacrificial, requires you know enormous sacrifice by both the mother and father, as you know, like why is that denigrated? Why is that not? Why is why are sex workers, you know, OnlyFans girls? Why do they get like all this virtue signaling credibility and they're influencers? The, the child-free lifestyle is celebrated. 
what about the women who are, they're the ones, you know, as they say, doing the work, like we're doing all the work and we're doing the heavy lifting, you know, to keep the civilization going. And we just like Roddy Dangerfield said, we get no respect. Yeah. Well, you'd have to ask the New York post about the only fans <laughs> thing, because I think that, I think the New York post is there and I like the New York post. I don't mean to be, I mean to be too, too critical, but it seems like the New York Post and the Daily Mail are like the uh, are like the PR departments of OnlyFans. So if you want to find out something going on on OnlyFans, you know, go to the New York Post or the Daily Mail. That's that's uh, that's where you go for that sort of thing. I, I still don't get that, but you're right. I mean, it, and it's the difference between real empowerment and false empowerment, right? I'm not even going to argue that necessarily that OnlyFans is false empowerment. If that's the choice that those women are making, I don't agree necessarily with that choice, but I don't think that they lacked agency in doing it. Um, but I, I don't know that I would call that true empowerment either. But if if that's empowerment, then certainly choosing to have children, raise them well, uh, invest in your family and in your family's future, that's also empowerment. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would agree that those women who are choosing the child-free lifestyle or choosing, you know, only the OnlyFans lifestyle, I don't know if they have agency. At least, I mean, I think they think they do. But I think that they have been brutally lied to for years um, and, and basically brainwashed. Um, I mean, I and the reason I know this is because I was brainwashed also. And it requires almost being deprogrammed as though you were in a cult to finally wake up and realize that, oh, you know, rampant promiscuity might, might not be the best way to get, you know, to, to achieve a happy life. Um, you're, you're just like, you know, birth control and abortion are not liberating. And in fact, birth control in many ways is a form of mind control. And I mean, if you start really thinking about what, what happens to women who are kind of sold this bag of like feminism and how they turn out at the end, you know, we're seeing the, I think we're, we're reaping what we've sown. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, no one would want their daughter, you know, on Tinder for 10 years. Um, you know, you know, the dating app Tinder, they, they just celebrated their 10 year anniversary. And I was reading articles, glowing celebratory articles, in like the times and New York magazine about women who, who downloaded the app right 10 years ago and are still on it. And like, that was one of the most depressing things I've ever read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's, what? that doesn't sound good at all. That does not no. sound recommendation. And I, I, I take your point too. I, I do. I take your point. And I think that, you know, even men are somewhat programmed in that sense too by oh, the yeah. culture. I mean, and they are, they are um, rewired for it. And I think, I think the risk is a lot greater for women for, you know, and, and not, not to get too biological about it, but because when pregnancies occur, it usually falls on single women rather than single men to, to, um, to have the child raise the child. And that, uh, and that is a disadvantage. One of the reasons why human societies evolved to have families and to promote families as the, as the central unit of civilization. And I think we've been trying to deconstruct that now for 50 or 60 years. And, yeah. and it's, it isn't freeing anybody. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, that your argument sort of reveals is this isn't really freeing people. This is, almost putting them in a, in a, in a form of slavery, um, that looks a lot like liberation, but actually is its opposite. 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say slavery because one of the graphics that accompanied the the, the Tinder 10-year anniversary article in the New York Times Magazine, the illustration was of a woman's wrist handcuffed to her cell phone with the Tinder app on it. Wow. Right. So there you go. And I was like, well, that is sure is that is that sure is interesting. They would choose that graphic. Um, but yeah, to your point about men, I mean, look, they've men have been only too happy to take advantage of, you know, women's liberation, sex positivity, like young guys are like, oh, you we can do whatever we want with you guys. And we don't have to worry about you guys getting pregnant. We don't have to we don't have to be forced into marrying you. Great. Like, sign me up. Right. Like it just sort of made the men, you know, guilt-free, shame-free. They could do, they could take advantage of all these young women who are, you know, happy to, uh, you know, do whatever the men wanted. But it's also so destructive for men. I mean, that that's not healthy either. So like, just because you have the quote freedom to, you know, date a lot of girls, ghost a lot of girls, you know, potentially impregnate them or whatever. Um, just because you can do that, it's not doesn't mean it's good for your soul. And I think that uh, people have mistaken like things that are allowed, you're allowed to do or encouraged to do. That doesn't mean it's good to do. Like you know, decriminalizing, you know, uh, uh, incredibly potent marijuana. Okay, it's decriminalized. That doesn't mean it's healthy. That doesn't suddenly mean it's like eating kale. You know, we we have to like draw the line here, like just because it's tacitly approved, you still shouldn't do it. And that's what, you know, I'm trying to make that case to people. Yeah, I, I, I like the kale thing. I, you know, that, <laughs> that's, that's that's spot on. That's <laughs> got to stick with that one. All right. And again, the book is called the Domestic Extremist, a Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. And of course, there mm -hmm. are a number of culture war battles going on right now. And the one I think that is most in the forefront of my mind is what's going on with the Dodgers. And you're in Los Angeles and I'm an, I'm an Angelino. I'm a native Angelino. I lived there for over half my life until I moved to Minnesota. And now I'm in Texas. And I believe I have bled Dodger blue that almost the entire time, even when I'm not following baseball, I'm a Dodger guy, right? Or I have been up until recently. And this was a team that really put an emphasis until very, very, very recently on the wholesome family entertainment that is Major League Baseball, right? When the O'Malley's owned it, when Tommy Lasorda and Walter Alston and Ben Scully were involved, it was all about wholesome family entertainment. Uh, and then they decide that they're going to do Pride Night. And I don't have an issue with Pride Night so much. Um, I, I just assume that they've been doing Pride Nights for a while. Uh, but they invite the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is an anti-Catholic hate group, to honor them as community heroes. And I mean, this is really sticking a thumb in the eye of Catholics and Christians, not just Catholics, but Christians. I mean, they're, they're, they're blaspheming the entire religion, not just, a, not just one particular ecclesial community. Um, and, and the Dodgers are going to honor them for that. And I mean, that to me is just um astounding and what's astounding to me is that so far only a couple of the dodgers <laughs> have actually spoken out against this clayton kershaw was sort of a i know milk toast is not the right word to use this week <laughs> but it's sort of a milk toast <laughs> sort of response well let's have christian fam family and faith night you know and my comment to that was although i think it was well intended 
uh, I don't think that uh, we still we still really want Christian Money Night. <laughs> the stadium is really going to cut it in this instance. And then uh, Blake Trinan um, spoke out and was a lot harsher about it. Um, but no one's no one on the team is saying, "Well, I'm not going to be there." And I'm I'm just really curious as to why there hasn't been more of an organized pushback uh, by people in in the community there. I mean, it's, this is a heavily Latino fan base in Los Angeles. They are heavily Christian, uh, either Catholic or evangelical. Um, and yet there's been a reluctance to step out about that. Um, not by you, <laughs> not by me. Uh, but what do you, what do you attribute that to? Well, I mean, I think that people here are, you know, it's Los Angeles. So, I mean, you know, 70% of, uh, LA County voted for Joe Biden, you know, people are not necessarily, this is, this is just what, what is who we, who we're dealing with. So, I mean, just because we have, you know, let's say a large Hispanic Catholic population, they're still, they're still liberals, you know, they're, they're not like, you know, they're not like us. Um, but I will say there is a huge pushback I'm seeing among my like Catholic and Christian friends. I mean, I, I know a family who named their son after Clayton Kershaw. Okay. They, you know, the big, the biggest Dodger family that I know, and they have completely disavowed the team forever. I mean, honestly, it's, it's game over for the Dodgers among a lot of people I know. And the shocking thing is like you were saying it, you know, no one cared about Pride Night. They had Pride Night since 2012 or 13, right? So it's been going on for 10 years. They would have a night in June where they would like, I don't know, hand out a rainbow pin. Like no one cared. Like if you didn't want to go that night, fine. And no one was like thinking that the whole organization was, you know, anti-Catholic or anti-family because they had that night. I mean, Pride stuff has been happening, you know, for years, there's been parades and there's gay bars and all of this. And you don't see anyone saying anything about it because it's just like, well, you know, let them do whatever they want. Like, it's not no skin off my my back. Right. So, right. So, but now it's, this is why it's different to me. It's because people complained, you know, this is super offensive. These are, This is not just some kind of like, you know, gay group. This is not just like a gay person. This is a group that's doing, you know, nude uh, pole dances on the cross. And they have basically like a stripper as Jesus doing basically sex acts with Jesus. You know, this is this is their like show. And like that's not only not only anti-Catholic, it's just inappropriate. It's just gross. Like, right. you know, it really doesn't have much to do with like, oh, they're gay or whatever. Like, okay, it's just it's it's pornography and they're like a porn group. And like, are they gonna honor, you know, porn stars next? Where does where does inclusivity? you know, end. Like, are we going to include neo-Nazis one year? Are we going to include the Satanists? Like, at what point can we draw the line and say, this is a family park, okay? Like, this is so, not, should not be, nothing R-rated should be happening at Dodger Stadium. Like, that seems reasonable, you know? Well, and or, or honored, which is what, I mean, I don't think that the SPI is going to go out there and do the routine on the field. I think, <laughs> I think that they'll, I think that they'll try to be a little bit more discreet than that and the Dodgers would probably insist on it anyway but that's not I'm to me to to a certain extent that's not even the point this group is an anti-catholic hate group and they they do this for the purpose of humiliating and denigrating catholics and christians and i mean you you said you know the neo nazis i actually made that uh, analogy yesterday in one of my posts that would be oh. Wednesday because this won't run today um, about the about the neo-Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, and I think it was 78 that applied oh, yeah. 
permit to march, right? And the ACLU ends up defending them. And I have always argued that that was the right call because right. as long as they weren't breaking the law, they had every right to organize in a public space as anybody else did. Now you can all counter organize and, 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 and uh, counter demonstrate as long as you're peaceful. That's what America's about. But you don't honor, I mean, the, if somebody had said, let's, you know, oh, by the way, those neo-Nazis in Skokie, well, they donate some money to a hospice care place, you know, right. or they, a hospice care place for, for their allies. Well, let's go ahead and give them a, let's honor them at, at uh, Wrigley Stadium, because this was, again, in Illinois. I mean, people would have lost their minds over it, and for good reason. <laughs> you don't honor stuff like that. And to me, that's the that's the issue is, is that they are honoring a group for their hatred and they're participating in that hatred. And even though it was explained to them <laughs> that, that this is what this group is, they reverse themselves, then reverse themselves back because they felt it was, I, I mean, my read on this peachy is that they felt it was safer to insult the Christians than it was to insult the the hardline progressive activists behind the SPI. That's exactly right. That's who they're afraid of. I mean, to me, that was very telling that they, when they groveled and apologized, even after there had been all this pushback, you know, even after people had said, no, stop. And Catholic groups were saying, you can't have them. The Dodgers made a huge choice as an organization to side with the sisters. Okay. So just a giant middle finger, double fisted middle finger to anyone who disagreed right? To anyone who didn't want their kids associated with. So the, 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 the whole organization is saying, we stand with these, with the sisters, we stand with this group. Okay. So now no matter even what you do on the field, they could come out in, you know, boat in, in a, you know, black tie tails, the tuxedos doesn't matter anymore. Now we all know what the Dodger organization as a company believes, what they stand for and who they prioritize, who is more important to them. Uh, same with target. You know, this is who's more important to target these sort of satanic clothing designers that they've given these licensing agreements. For. Like this is who they are prioritizing. They don't care what like normal people, normal parents and kids want. They have chosen, they've chosen poorly. And really our only recourse now is, is to just, you know, punish them as much as we can by refusing to take part. Right. And again, this is something that you're going to be that you do cover in Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. Mm -hmm. um, and this culture war goes beyond Dodger Stadium. I mean, Dodger Stadium is is not necessarily an everyday experience for people. People go there, you know, if, even if you have season tickets, you go there, you know, maybe a few dozen times a year. Uh, most of the rest of it is just you you buy a ticket or you watch it on TV on occasion. You know, a place like Target. You just you brought up Target, and I think it's a a, a great um, a, a great topic to hit on this. A place like Target, you go shopping there all the time. Sometimes you do your grocery shopping at Target, and here you've got Target partnering with a Satanist, right, <laughs> to do yeah. designs for kids. And this is the part to me that I think is even more insidious. And you get into this in your Federalist uh, column from Wednesday as well. Is it's one thing to do this with adults, right? And I am, I tend to be a little bit more libertarian than some of my fellow conservatives and say, well, you know, live and let live. I don't care what you do as an adult. Just don't, 
you know, just don't shove it in my face, but I'm, I'm, my job isn't to tell you necessarily you've got to live this way unless you're claiming also to be Catholic. That's a whole other ball of wax. <laughs> yeah. But the, um, but the, the, the big issue here is that it's now targeting kids and target. This was, uh, this was in, you know, some of these designs were designed for kids. Some of them weren't. Um, but there's also the, um, the story that came out of Disneyland also in, you know, Southern California, not Los Angeles, Orange County, but they, <laughs> they all run together. I dare, I dare you to stand in Anaheim and tell me how it's different than Alhambra. <laughs> right. It's not right. It's just all California now. Just one big, uh, unistate well, nightmare. It's a megalopolis. Well, at least, <laughs> at least from Santa Barbara to San Diego, it's a, it's a megalopolis. Yep. There. Um, but, um, Disneyland had a fairy godmother with a mustache. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, That's you know, right. Introducing the boutique there, uh, the the dresses in the boutique to little girls. And well, no, go ahead. No, I, I mean, and I thought your comment on this was really spot on because I know that you know Disneyland and Disney World place a high emphasis on not taking people out of the show. And then this is your comment. And I really, it struck me about this is that a man in drag is not only bizarre and inappropriate, but take guests, takes guests out of the show and their whole routine is, mm -hmm. you know, to have this illusion continue. If you're, if you're staying at one of the hotels, you know, while, you know, while you're in your hotel room, while you're going through the hotel, the whole thing is one big um, fantasy. And that's its selling point. And then you see this and you're going, <laughs> wait a minute. Um, so tell us a little bit about your reaction to that. I mean, you've got kids. Um, would that be something that you would want your want to have to explain to a to a, <laughs> a little kid? Yeah, I mean, no. And um, look, I've been in that boutique many times. I have little girls, we've we've we're bibbity bobbity customers, we've mm -hmm. done the whole makeover, the whole experience. And like I said. It's one of the last places in the park where you have this really, truly splendid, magical, immersive little kid experience. I mean, from the minute you walk in, the fairy godmother apprentices are in their little dresses and the little girls gets, you know, it's a beauty parlor and they sit down and they do their makeup and their hair. And then they, when they're all finished, they like press a button and like music plays, you know, and the curtains open and they're presented. I mean, it's just very sweet. It's overpriced, but it's almost worth it, you know, on a, on a birthday. And so, uh, but like Disney, you know, yeah, D Disney cast members are taught that like you never break the show, you know, Mickey Mouse never takes off his head. Do you know what I mean? He never uses his voice. Like you can't break it. When I was five and I've been going to the park probably once a year, my whole life, I've been there a million times, um, Disney file my whole life. When I was five, my dad was taking me to find a bathroom and he opened the wrong door and there was like a changing room. And there was, I saw Donald duck without his head on. It was like a guy in like a Donald duck bottom suit. And I was traumatized for life. <laughs> but now Aww, to see, that's sad. <laughs> I, know. I never forgot that. I was like, he's not a duck daddy. What is he? So now, but you have a man in the fairy godmother dress and with his full mustache, you know, Walt never used to let men have um, mustaches or beards in the park. Everyone had to be clean cut. That They changed that a few years ago. Slippery slope. And now he's also, but he's also in full makeup. 
And so he's not trying to pretend to be a woman. He's saying his name is Nick in the video, the fairy godmother guy. He has his mustache. It's clearly a man. And he's just in drag because he's expressing himself or whatever. And the thing is, they have a changing room in there. Little girls are dressed, changing into the dresses. Like, who's in there with the girls? You know, why Why does Why does Disney want to put this so up front? He's at the door greeting them. I don't have no problem. None. If that guy washed off his makeup and wore a little like, you know, medieval man's outfit and was checking them in, like no one would care. You know, why does it have to be the godmother character? Right. They couldn't give him a special man character. Like, why is that so important? Because what? it's political. They're just trying to make a point. I mean, you make him a footman, right? I mean, it's a Cinderella. He's one of the, <clears throat> he's one of the mice that turned into a footman. Oh, right. He's the coachman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of roles yeah. they can play. I, I mean... And this is this is one of the frustrations that I have with this. This and, and the other is the idea of who's starting the culture war, right? Uh, and I'm certain <laughs> that you're going to discuss this in Domestic Extremists, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War, which is <laughs> the idea that somehow it's the people who are reacting to this that are that are responsible for setting off a culture war. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm sorry, but. You know, if if I had gone out of my way to pick a fight over uh, Pride Night, you know, at the Dodger Stadium when it wasn't even a game I was going to attend, I maybe you know I I could say okay, yeah, that that you're reaching. That's that's not that's not what's happening here though. They're going into the schools. They're indoctrinating children into gender ideology. You talk about that, and that's what you talk about in the um um uh, in the Federalist uh, piece. The Federalist piece, right? Mm -hmm. How to mm -hmm. opt out of your child's Pride Month's activities at school. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to have Pride flags in a kindergarten <laughs> or a first grade. I'd argue probably don't even need it in middle school, really. But I mean, I mean, it just it's inappropriate. That's not the type of thing that you send your kids to school to learn. Those are values that, that, that children can learn at home. They should be being educated in school and learn values at home. And it's really the other way around these days. Yeah, I mean, you know, my book title, Domestic Extremists, it's, you know, it's obviously ironic because they call us extremists because we don't want to go along with this very extreme program that they're shoving down our throats. And so we're the extremists. I think Target, one of the Target uh, clothing designers, the trans clothing designers, was calling the people who protested domestic terrorists, okay? You know, the Department of Justice called parents who complained at school board meetings against pornography in elementary school libraries, the, De the Department of Justice called them domestic terrorists. You know, like we're these these we're the bad people. We're extreme, but no, we're just trying. We just want to be normal. <laughs> but there's a there's like a war on normalness, on normalcy. And so my point of my book is, you know, the only way to win this is to become extremely domestic, i.e., reject all of this stuff, pull yourself, pull your family, pull your kids out of just mainstream American culture, because look at all of it from top to bottom, this corporate educational, you know, college um, media mess is coming at us. You you can't, they're not letting you opt out anymore. You know, like if you go to sign up your kid for like summer camp or preschool or the pediatrician's office, you get a drop down of like, what gender is your six month old? And it's like 50 genders. And like, no, I don't want to even like I, I'm at the pediatrician, they make you write your child's pronouns. It's like, no, I opt out of that. Like, I don't want to, if you're a doctor and you don't know what gender my kid is, you need to go back to medical school.
Right. Why am I the extremist? You know, I'm, we're just normal. Okay. That's it. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, nobody would have been doing this, right? <laughs> 10 years ago, if, if somebody had said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when even more so, <laughs> right. If, if, if you had gone to the doctor and he's, and he's, you know, uh, giving a wellness check to your little boy and said, well, um, G is uh, doing fine. You would have said, what in the hell are you talking about? His name is not G. <laughs> uh, now it's, it's required. As you said, right. they, they, they ask you to do this and it's not really even asking. Um, so, I mean, we could go on and on about this for a very long time. And <laughs> I mean, I, I cover this territory with Adam Baldwin on, um, uh, amiable skeptics, uh, uh, you know, quite often because it's uh, because it's interesting territory to cover. But um, but your book, Domestic Extremists, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. I mean, that's really what you're trying to do here. You're trying to prepare people, probably especially, I would imagine, families uh, in in dealing with a culture that has taken a sudden sharp left turn into insanity and fighting to keep your own family from falling victim to it. Right. And I think my book is actually also targeted to, to women. I mean, um, just because of my own trajectory, my own, you know, quote unquote journey, as they said. And my, the point I'm trying to make is like, if I can do it, if I can kind of break out of like the conditioning or whatever, any, literally anyone can do it. If I, you know, I don't, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, I'm not Betty Crocker. I don't vacuum in heels and pearls. I'm not like a tra traditional trad wife. You know what I mean? Like I'm a, I'm a modern lady. I don't have a farm. I, I don't touch live, live livestock of any kind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wouldn't last very long on a homestead. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, nobody, nobody who is an Angelino would last very long in a homestead. I'm just oh, telling well, you that right now. In the, in the, in the apocalypse, we'll all, we're all done. We're all dead. Know, like, we're dead. No way. <laughs> You have a chance. You're in Texas. Like you might make it, but like, if I have to start a fire, uh, that's it. Like it's over. <laughs> I think I'd still have to try to suck up to a neighbor to, to survive yeah, yeah. the apocalypse. Right. I'm sorry. I mean, just again, native Angelino, totally not prepared whatsoever. We are, we are doomed over here, Ed. Um, but yeah, I mean, the case I'm trying to make is like, there's no, like, there's no like middle ground here anymore. You know, yes, they, they brought the fight to us. We're just trying to live our lives. We don't want to fight. We have, I don't have any interest in like, you know, all this stuff kind of came to me and I really feel like, well, someone's got to stand up here. I don't want to, but like, you know, I have other things. I have a lot of laundry to fold, you know, <laughs> I should be folding laundry, but I'm on Twitter and I'm like fighting this war because I have, you know, people say they have skin in the game. I have a lot of kin in the game. You know, I have, I have right. these kids, uh, they're growing up. They're going to, I hope I want them to have families they're, I hope, I hope to have many grandchildren. I like, my goodness, where are we going to be in 20, 50 years? I'm not looking to go back to like the 1780s here, you know, put women back, you know, in the, you know, harvesting, whatever. I'm just, how about the 1980s, you know, like within recent memory, like you said, things were, things were, it was normal for women to have, let's say three or more children or women to choose to stay home. And that was completely fine uh, for children to, if they like your, like their gender, they can keep their gender. Like right. we, we have to, we have to remember these things. And we have to also remember how well it worked too. 
and while that we had problems and we weren't perfect, uh, we certainly were um, organized for much better organized for happiness and um, and and social engagement than we are right now. And I think that that's another another thing that we have to remember while we're talking about uh, uh, your book, Domestic Extremist: Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. Let's not let's not uh, uh, forget some of your other uh, links, though, too, uh, before we. Before we shuffle off here, you can find Peachy Keenan uh, on Twitter at Keenan Peachy. And I'll have the link in the show post, but at Keenan Peachy is where you can find her. And I know because I just found her. <laughs> just, I just, there I am. you're not required to follow me back, you know, but it's okay. <laughs> I guess I will. Yes. Uh, okay. All right. Okay. And, <laughs> uh, and, um, you can go to um, her Substack, which is Peachy Keenan's Extremely Domestic, which is peachykeenan.substack.com. And uh, she writes occasionally there in, at the American Mind, as she mentioned earlier. And is there anything else that I'm forgetting about here? Any other links that we need to make sure that we- Well, I just want to make sure everyone knows they should uh, pre-order my book um, available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. And don't forget, every time you pre-order my book, a drag queen loses a, loses, breaks a nail. So please go ahead and do that now. Or loses a sequin. One or the other. But... <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, Peachy Keenan, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I hope that you'll be coming back here and we can we can continue having some more of these conversations. It's been great. Oh, it was great to be here. Thank you so much, Ed. Take care. <laughs>